0: Tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies they will seize, where there are tongues they will be stilled. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word.
1: Let's pray. Father God, you are love. Please, would you work into us love so that we might be clearly seen to be children of God. Father, would you change us as a community? Will we be a place where your love is seen and experienced? by everybody. We ask this, that we might be genuine, that we might be true, and that we might bear a witness to the reality of the power of God in our lives. Amen. I don't know uh, how you responded when you heard that reading, brought back memories of weddings you've been to. Ah, isn't it lovely? But if that's what you felt, if it was a sort of, ah, isn't that a lovely reading, I'm afraid you've misunderstood the chapter entirely because actually if we get what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 and why he's saying it we'd realize it's not ah oh, it's ow it's it's not a warm cozy embrace it's that slap round the face that Paul delivers in this chapter now as ever with the bible the slap is delivered in love it's a warning to to wake us out of danger to bring us back to god to turn us away from an ugly lie And to bring us to a beautiful, beautiful truth. Let me explain. Uh, Hands up if you played Monopoly as a child. Pretty much everybody. Almost as many as knew Hadaway. I was quite impressed with that. Um, Look, as if children aren't good enough at arguing, somebody had to invent Monopoly. But the, the point of Monopoly, as we all know, other than arguing with your siblings, is to make money to make as much money as you can. You can buy hotels, houses, extort rent out of people, uh, so you can behave like a London landlord. Basically, that's the, that's the point of uh, Monopoly. Um, we love landlords, you're welcome here. I didn't mean that. Um, don't say things off. Anyway, um, but it's no good getting to the end of the Monopoly game and pocketing a trouser full of the Monopoly money and wandering down to a shop and then trying to buy something with it. I mean, even if if they do accept any cash at all these days, even if they they do, they're going to say, well, that's an impressive wad of cash there, but I'm afraid we don't accept that money here. That is not worth anything in the real world. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is going to teach us that God has a different value system, that lots of things that we think are really worth lots are monopoly money in God's eyes. Are worth nothing at all. The currency that has real value in God's economy is love. Now, Paul wants to expose the lie in particular that it's our gifts and our abilities that determine our value. The beautiful truth of 1 Corinthians 13 is that what really has value in God's eyes is love love for God, love for others. That is what is valuable to God. Now, uh, the word love appears 10 times from 1 Corinthians 13:1 to 14:1, And the Greeks had four different words for love. So you have eros, which is romantic love, sexual attraction, from which we get eroticism. You've got philos, which is sort of friendly affection or the delight in learning something, philosophy, the love of learning. Uh, you've got storge, which is a kind of empathetic bond, the feeling for somebody else. And then you've got agape, which is self-sacrificial, unconditional love. Quite a rare word, actually, in secular Greek. But it's the word that's most often used in the New Testament for love, and it is the only word which is used in 1 Corinthians 13 for love. This is what Paul uses, agape, self-sacrificial, unconditional love. And we're just looking at the first three verses tonight. He'll start to define what that looks like in positive terms as we go on next week. But before we get into the text, we need to go to Corinth because we're never going to understand how on earth do we apply this chapter to our lives in London unless we understand first, of course, how it applied to their lives in Corinth. Now, uh, Corinth was a relatively new city when Paul was writing to it. It had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar after having been leveled a generation or two before that. In 44 BC, he he rebuilt it as a Roman colony. And it stands, if you can see, uh, towards the bottom of Greece, just above where it says Achaia. It stands on that very narrow isthmus, just four miles wide, which separated the western Mediterranean from the Aegean to the east. So it was a critical trade hub. It was basically, in one sense, the ancient equivalent of the Panama Canal. And because of that, it very quickly became enormously influential and very, very wealthy. It was also very, very immoral. It was so immoral that there was a word to Corinthianize, which basically meant to live an utterly sexually debauched life, to Corinthianize. So in London terms, if, if you said, uh, my... Uh, I, I live in Corinth and I love Corinth. People are thinking, okay, so you're on Tinder Grinder and Jaeger Bombs. That is basically what it is. That it is just think of the city and then put it on steroids. It was, I mean, unbelievable behavior. Now, Corinth also, as a, as a very wealthy and very new city, it was a place of achievement and competition and getting ahead. It's not a place of tradition. It's a place where new wealth can go and get rich quick. It's a place where you can make your mark, a place where ambitious people could arrive and quickly do impressive things. And tragically, the church had become rather too like the city. It had become another arena for people to um, make their mark, to compete, to get ahead, to excel, to outdo one another. And in particular, as we look at these chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14, we see that people are using the gifts God has given them for the building up of the church to show off rather than to build up others. They long that God would gift them so that others will be impressed. So the end of chapter 12 would have had the attention of everybody in the Corinthian congregation. Look back with me to 12, 28. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way, at which point a hush descends in Corinth. The smartphones go down. The rustling ceases. Come then, Paul. Tell me how I can find the most excellent way. Tell me how I can be the best here. Tell me how I can get ahead. And then chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, slam into them like a cruise missile. Now, I don't think we're exactly the same as Corinth. Of course not. But what we're seeing in extreme terms in Corinth is very much present, too, in London. So like them, we live in a cosmopolitan, a wealthy, a dynamic, and a diverse city. Like them, we live in a a city that's full of young, ambitious people. And like them, as a church, we are soaked in a culture that is constantly competing, where our value is assessed day to day by metrics of how well we're doing, by the amount of money we earn, how quickly we achieve promotion, how many dates we go on, whatever it is, we're always competing, being graded. We're very aware of where we are in relation to our peers. And like them, the danger is those, those attitudes which exist outside, we bring them in here We probably won't go as far as them jostling to impress others with my spiritual gifts. I mean, it probably sounds just a bit weird to us. But we are tempted to judge our value, I think, still by what we do in church. Do you have an upfront role? Do you lead a DG group? And so we feel either a little bit proud or just useless, depending on the gifts and the role that we have. And in 1 Corinthians 13, the Holy Spirit tells us "Look, those things are monopoly money in God's eyes. When it comes to judging your true spiritual worth, that's just monopoly money. God's true currency, the thing that really matters to God, what really has value in his eyes is love. So let's look through, let's get into the text. So without love, I'm a grating sound. Now structurally, you'll notice... uh, As we went through, the first three verses follow the same pattern. You've got something impressive and then something even more stunning. And then the statement that without love, it's just nothing. Verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now chapter 12 told us that the, the Corinthians are particularly impressed with their speaking gifts especially those who've got the miraculous ability to speak in foreign languages. Do you remember at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on the, the apostles, the, the, the first gathering of Jesus' people, they were enabled to speak foreign languages by God so that they could go out and tell other people about Jesus. But even better than that, in Corinth, there were those who were seen to be able to speak in a heavenly and angelic language. And Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but don't have love... <laughs> I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, he's not denying the value and usefulness of speaking gifts. To be gifted by God to speak is a wonderful thing. I mean, Jesus' salvation comes as a verbal message. It says, God's people speak as you speak that your unbelieving friends and family can be saved for eternity. It's as God's people speak that Christians are built up and matured in their faith. Without speech gifts, there is no church. But even if you have a gift to grow a church from a handful of people to thousands, if you're not behaving in love, this is what it sounds like to God. Did you get the point or do I need... No. No. That's what it sounds like to God if I'm not exercising speech in love. You know there was a, a recent ranking of the most annoying sounds, according to the Internet. I've done something bad with a musical instrument. I'm sorry. <laughs> Who would have known that a thing you're allowed to bash is actually quite sensitive? I'm sorry, symbol. Um, you know what the most annoying sounds? Not my voice, don't even try. Uh, a Vuvuzela, yeah, thanks for that, South Africa. Uh, nails on a chalkboard, a tube line going around a sharp bend. Uh, for those who remember the late 1990s, dial-up modem, Yeah. car alarms, snoring, Jimmy Carr's laugh, apparently, him. <laughs> poor guy. Uh, the phrase, unexpected item in bagging area. <laughs> uh, other people's message alerts, Crying babies, not your own, especially on an (laughs) aeroplane. Most children's toys, yep, and pneumatic drills. There you go, that's the official list of the most annoying sounds according to Londoners. When a preacher stands up and proclaims the truth about Jesus Christ, but their heart is full of pride about how good their preaching is, when a Bible study leader leads a really clear and helpful and faithful study, but their heart is just full of frustration that the group aren't maturing the way they should, or just not grateful for the amount of hard work I'm putting in. When a Christian shares the gospel late at night with a flatmate, but actually they are, there's a bit of them that thinks you don't really deserve forgiveness. It sounds to God Or like that. Or like a pneumatic drill outside your window at three o'clock in the morning. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse two, though, I think is the most shocking of the three punch combination which opens this chapter. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Now the first half, do you see that about receiving revelations from God? Opening the deep, unfathomable mysteries of who God is to others. What an amazing thing to be able to do. If you turn back to chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says this was his great privilege. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of God, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He's saying, look, as an apostle, this is my unthinkable privilege. Almighty God has opened the mystery of who he is to me, so I can share it with you. Uh, The second half of the verse then picks up on what Jesus says in Matthew 21, 21, when he says, look, by faith you can do such awesome things that if you believe, you can say to this mountain, go on then, hop in the sea. And it will do so. Even if I could do those things, things that would mark you out as an apostle of God, those gifts are worth nothing if I'm not filled with love. And it doesn't say that, does it? It says something much more uncomfortable and shocking. Not just my gifts are worth nothing, but I am nothing It's not just, my gifts aren't worth anything if there's no love in me, but I am not worth anything if there's no love in me. Why on earth does love matter that much? Why is it that I'm I am nothing without love? It's because of who God is. God is all loving. God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, God is all-wise, God is all-generous. All true, but you never hear God describe himself as knowledge or power or wisdom. The Bible does declare God is love. And from the first page to the last page, God's word proclaims that at his heart, God is love. Is love, holy, perfect, self sacrificial, everlasting love. Therefore, if there is no love in me, there is nothing of God in me. Theologian Jonathan Edwards explained that great gifts are like beautiful jewelry that you wear. And it's undeniable that when you wear stunning jewelry, you look dazzling and impressive, but they just adorn your outside. Now, the crown that King Charles will wear at his coronation, it has got 444 precious stones set into two kilos of solid gold. It's so valuable, Jeff Bezos would need a mortgage to buy it. And Charles will look pretty spectacular, if a little weird, uh, wearing it. But it won't change who he is. It won't change his value. Because at the end of the day, he will take it off and it goes back to the tower. Love, though, transforms your very soul, as Edwards puts it, into a precious diamond. I think we probably struggle to get our heads around this point. I mean, how can someone be given genuine revelations of God's mysteries? He's not saying fake teaching, but genuine revelations of God's mysteries, and being able to perform genuine miracles by the power of God, and yet be spiritually empty, nothing. How is that possible? We might struggle to understand it, but we have all seen it. Judas. We read in Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them, all of them, authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. doesn't say 11 of them, but not to Judas, of course. And only a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus himself warned in, John, in Matthew 7, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, Judas performed great miracles, but his heart was never changed. There was no true love for Jesus in him. And we may not understand why on earth would God give gifts that enable people to perform miracles if they're not his genuine followers. But actually, we should just be thankful he does. I mean, how awful would the world be if God only worked good things through his own people? But this is an undeniably frightening warning for us. It warns us first, do not be blinded by the gifts of others. It doesn't matter how greatly they're used by God. Don't be blinded by gifting. What matters to God is genuine love for God and for others. That's the only true sign that someone's converted. And we mustn't fool ourselves. We're something in God's eyes because we're useful. I mean, it's a dangerous thing. But, and it's also one of those dangers that the longer you've been a Christian, the more tempting it is to fall into. You know, you, you go through an ugly bitter, resentful patch. You become a bit hard and angry inside. But then you lead a Sunday school class, and one of the usually disengaged kids really seems to grasp the gospel for the first time. Or someone at work asks you about your faith in the pub one evening, and and as you explain about Jesus' forgiveness and the solid basis it gives you for your identity, they really lap it up. They say, I want to find out more about this. And you think to yourself, I can't be that bad if God's using me like this. Just because God is using me doesn't mean my heart is right with him. Without love, I am nothing. Lastly, without love, I gain nothing. Verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast... But do not have love, I gain nothing. Again, these are very impressive spiritual actions. And again, the things that characterize Paul himself. In Philippians 3.8, he revealed he'd lost everything of value in his life to follow Christ. Philippians 2.17, he described what his life was like now as a Christian minister. He said, it's like being poured out like a drink offering. Everything I have is poured out to serve you guys. And those things are worth it because, as he goes on to say in Philippians 3, we have an inheritance in heaven. Jesus tells loads of parables about, look, hey, it's really worth serving God now because he really will reward you. And he is very generous. Generous, He says, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. But if I'm not motivated by love, if all that sacrifice is done so I can boast, done out of a sense of pride or superiority, Or if it's done to put other people, or worse still, God, in my debt, I gain nothing. Here's a significant uh, amount of money. Um, There you go. Uh, A billion pounds, enough for a flat deposit in zone four. It's a, a very, very significant amount of money. What's the value of it if you take away one digit? I've only taken away one digit. Like literally, a tiny little number one. Only one thing's gone, and now it's worth nothing. And you theoretical mathematicians don't even try. It is worth nothing. You take away love, and it has the same impact on all the things we do. I think actually this is a principle we do recognize. So imagine I buy a nice present and some flowers for my wife, as I do almost every day, and uh, she smiles and says, how lovely, why did you buy me such lovely flowers and that beautiful present? And I say, I felt like I had to, because that's what good husbands do, isn't it? Or, so you have to be nice to me now. Suddenly, how valuable do you think the gift is to her? There's no point in me protesting, what are you talking about? That's useless. You have no idea how much that cost me. It doesn't matter what they cost me. They are utterly worthless to her. They only have value if the answer is, I bought them because I love you. See, you can obey everything the Bible teaches and remain bitter towards God. Serving him out of fear or, or from some cold calculus like the older brother and the prodigal son that he will have to bless you if you do enough for him. And if you live like that, there'll be an ugly twistedness in you. A great split between outward actions that serve God and an inner heart that is cold towards him. But if your heart is full of love for God and others... Well, then you'll obey him as a natural outworking. You'll do stuff because the love inside you, it flows out through what you say and how you spend and what you do. I mean, do you remember how Jesus summarized God's law? He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if your heart is full of love for God and love for people, you'll do all the other stuff. See, Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 13 is not love people instead of teaching them the Bible. It's not love people instead of seeking the Spirit's gifting to serve. It's not love people instead of giving generously of your money and yourself to others. It's do those things, but do them Because you love God and you love his people. See, chapter 13, it doesn't just float down from heaven on angels' wings for people to read in weddings. It's sandwiched between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, which are all about how the church was using and abusing spiritual gifts. Paul's point is, look, the very reason God gave you all these different gifts is so that you serve other people. They are a means for you to love other people. You cannot understand how to serve unless you have at the heart love, which is why 1 Corinthians 13 is at the heart of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Love enables us to serve. Love motivates us to serve. Everything flows from love. And that is the beautiful vision at the heart of 1 Corinthians 13. But I guess if we're honest, like me, you'd have to say that's probably a little bit of a way from the reality of our own hearts. Everything God does is motivated by love. Some things I do are prompted by love. God's love is expansive, unfailing, and self-denying. My love, selective, a bit cliquey, focused on people who love me back, runs out quite quickly. So there's a danger we crawl out of here just feeling utterly worthless. I mean, after all, who can say, okay, if that's what 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 mean, I'm feeling pretty good about my Christian faith right now. But remember, Paul began the letter to a very worldly, very immoral church by saying, chapter 1, verse 2, if you look, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He believes that these Corinthians are justified, sanctified, loved by God. So these verses, they're a warning to those who are spiritually alive, not a condemnation to the spiritually dead. Paul's words are meant to be convicting, but not crushing. And the right response is we confess our failings, and we humbly ask God, God, please change me. Paul speaks in binary terms about a sliding scale. He says, without love, it's worth nothing. He knows full well for all of us, we're not totally lacking in love, but neither are we ever perfect in love. So he tells us the stark reality to encourage us to pursue more love. That's why he does it. He tells us the stark binary reality. No love, you're nothing. So that we will seek more love. How do you do that? How can you practically grow in love if you know your love is deficient? Well, I'm sure you know the answer to this one. You're shaped by the people you spend time with. So spend time with the perfect source of love, Jesus Christ. Be filled with his love. And that great, unstoppable river of his love, it flows directly from the cross. That's its source. And the more you open yourself to his love poured out on you at the cross the more you will be filled with that love and the more that love will flow out through you to others. So think, read, meditate on Jesus' death for you on the cross and as you do so, pray specifically that God's spirit would grow in you love for him and for others. The more you do that, the more you will then speak and serve out of the overflow of a heart that is full of love, a heart that shines in God's eyes like a dazzling diamond. God's aim over these few weeks is to polish that gem inside each of us so that our love shines out more and more. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we thank you that your word tells truth, hard truth, but beautiful truth. Father, we repent of the the times when we have gone through the motions. We have lacked love and not cared. We thank you that you are a God who cares about love above all else. And we pray, Father, that by your Spirit, as we cling to the cross, that you would fill us with the love that is poured out in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that this love would, (laughs) would infect everything that we do as a church, everything that we are as people that we might be beautiful in your sight and attractive to a world which is utterly confused about love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.